The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Please open your Bibles to that passage, John 3, 16 to 21. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on page 73 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the Lord for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, we come here this morning to uh, worship and praise you, Lord, to renew our hope and to stir our souls with the encouragement of the gospel. Lord, as we've just been singing, uh, Jesus, thy blood and thy righteousness, my beauty are in my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift, with joy shall I lift my head. Lord, what a, what a great song to proclaim our hope in the good news of the gospel of your son. Father, that we are covered in his righteousness. We have a robe that is ever new and that never fades, never wears out, is never tarnished, never stained, never brought into ruin or corruption, never destroyed by our own failings and sins, but a robe that is always perfect and spotless and without blemish, a robe that presents us before you without sin or stain or any such thing, or this robe of Christ's own righteousness that he has wrapped around us, we who believe in him. Lord, thank you for that good hope. Thank you for the good news of your son's blood covering us Uh, dealing with our sin, absorbing the wrath of God, judgment of God we deserve. Father, judgment from your hand and bringing us into a reconciled state of fellowship with you. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Thank you for Christ, Father. I pray you would awaken us this morning in our hearts, Lord. Don't let us sit here cold and distracted and diverted by lesser things of the world as we come to consider the riches of your word, or as we come to behold the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would awaken us this morning, arouse us from our sleep. Don't let us stumble in in this room and be distracted from your glory. God, please, please open our eyes. Holy Spirit, I pray you would blow freshly upon each heart in this room, that you would make the words sweet to the taste, Lord, that you would make the soul satisfied in the riches of Christ, that you would humble us where we need to be humbled. You would convict us of sin and purify your people, Lord. You are zealous for your house, and I pray that that zeal would manifest this morning through conviction of sin, God, through repentance, through making things right with our brothers and sisters and or confessing our sins to you in hope that you are just and faithful to forgive us of our sins when we come confessing them before you, all because of the blood and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless us this morning. What, what more can I ask than that you would bless us with a greater realization and a greater understanding, a greater perception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, glorify your Son among us, that you might be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody all right this morning? Are we? I pray that's the case. Some of you may not like 
what's happening over there in the corner, but I'm very thankful. <laughs> and um, All right, so we're coming back into John chapter 3. Um, last week we looked at what is probably the most widely known verse in the Bible, uh, at least the most widely quoted verse in the Bible next to uh, judge not, lest ye be judged. We have, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now in this verse, as we saw last week, Jesus gives us the foundation of the gospel. The bedrock of, of our salvation that Jesus came to give to us, that is the Father's love that motivated him to give his son, to lift him up on a cross for our sake. And what Jesus is emphasizing in that verse is the extent of that love. It's, it's a love that is so deep that it could only be expressed by the giving of the eternally begotten Son of God. He could only express the depth of his love for the world by giving the Son of his love to die for the world. And then you also see the extent of that love reflected in, um, in the fact that it is a love so wide that it encompasses the entire world. Every sinner born to Adam and Eve... Uh, are objects of this kind of love that was manifested in God the Son. So, so to the extent that God's promise to Adam and Eve was to... You remember God promised Adam and Eve that he would provide a savior, a redeemer, a skull-crushing seed of the woman who would come and deliver us from the effects of the fall? Well, to the extent that that promise applied to the descendants of Adam and Eve, to that same extent, the love of God manifested in Christ applies to the descendants of Adam and Eve. The only thing left for the sinner to do, according to Jesus Christ, is to receive this gift of the Father's love in faith. To reach up with that empty hand of faith, not offering God anything, but simply being willing to receive from Christ everything. That's it. That is the call of the gospel. That's how we are to respond to the gospel simply by reaching up with an empty hand in order to have everything that God has given us in his son. So that's the call of the gospel, that we would be saved in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the intent of the Father in sending his son, so that all will believe in Jesus Christ and live. That's what verse 17 makes very clear, that God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the Father's intention in the gospel. However, verses 18 through 21 teach us that though this is the Father's intent, this is not the universal effect. So though the intention of God in the gospel is to manifest his love to the end that all who believe, that the world would believe upon his son and be saved, though that intention is manifested in the gospel, that is not the universal effect that we find created by that gospel. For those who will not believe in the love that God the Father has displayed in His Son, those who will not fully and unhesitatingly entrust themselves to that love, rather than bringing them salvation, that love of the Father actually becomes a means of sealing their condemnation. So in a sense, Jesus says here that the very love of God that was given that sinners might be saved becomes a love that condemns. That's our first main point, a love that condemns. Verses 17 through 18, we find that God did not send his son with the intention of judging the world, condemning the world, but with the intent that the world might be saved through him. Now, verse 18, he who believes in him, he who believes in the Son is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, praise the Lord that everyone who believes in God's Son 
will be saved. That is the hope that's declared to us in this verse. Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. That's the confidence of the believer. That's the Father's promise that we go to the grave boldly clinging to and proclaiming back to God. When we take our last breath, our last breath is uttered with these words. Father, you've promised that those who believe in your Son will receive eternal life. I'm believing and now I'm ready to receive it in all of its fullness. That's the believer's confidence, even at the point of death, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even there the shepherding hand of the Lord will prove that we have no lack. He has provided everything for us. There's nothing lacking in what God has given his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, even at the point of death. So we go to the grave boldly declaring the love of God for us. Nothing else has our confidence. Nothing else to give us hope to come into the presence of the Lord. Nothing other than the sacrificial love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. But those who reject that love, those who refuse to accept it, those who refuse to let go of their sin so that they might have it, The very love that's offered to them becomes the loudest witness to the justice of their condemnation. Now, I don't mean that this is a love that the Father has demonstrated to the world for the purpose of condemning the world. What I mean is, is that it is a love that serves to magnify the condemnation of those who refuse to receive it. They are already condemned, verse 18 says. Because they have not believed. Many commentators point out that in verse 17, there's a shift in language from life-death language to the language of a courtroom. So these words for judge and judgment in Greek, that's krinomai and krisis, for those who are interested. Those, those, those words are legal terms. They are terms that would be used in the court of law. And it's as if what what Jesus is saying in these verses, it's as if God has brought all of humanity into his courtroom and the revelation of his love in Christ stands as a witness in his court. It is either a witness that declares the justice of God in giving salvation and eternal life to those who have believed, or it becomes a witness against those who have refused to receive that love and believe. Either way, it becomes a witness for the person who has heard that truth. The gospel of the Father's love for the world brings judgment upon the world, not because God's intention is to condemn the world through it, but because God's great love in Christ shines a spotlight upon just how depraved the sinner is who will not receive it. That's the condemnation, the judgment of the gospel. If you can picture it like this, you guys with me? Amen. If you can picture it like this, imagine that someone has wronged you in some way. Someone has attacked you, someone has done something against you that was wrong, sinned against you. On your part, maybe you decide that rather than lashing out in anger and trying to get even, you decide to follow the example of Christ, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he came, as it says in Ephesians 2, he came speaking peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. And we see that manifesting even in Christ at the cross, don't we? When he's on the cross, he's crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is that not as the Lord seeking to be as conciliatory and peaceable as he possibly can be? He's uttering that prayer on behalf of those who are murdering him. Does he not show his willingness and his readiness to be reconciled even to those who were crucifying him whenever he received the thief that was hanging right next to him on the cross and said, today you're going to be with me in paradise? Let's say someone has wronged you and you decide to respond to that person like Christ. And you come not seeking vengeance, 
Not being angry, not trying to be vindictive with this person, but you come seeking peace. You come seeking to be reconciled and to have things made right in your relationship with him or her. Only to find that the person who has wronged you is still unwilling to reconcile and unwilling to be at peace with you. Their rejection of your attempts to be at peace does not reflect poorly upon you. Their rejection to be at peace with you reflects poorly upon them. And it simply amplifies all the more the guilt of the other person. And it manifests more clearly which party is actually in the wrong. Right? Their desire to reject the kindness and the grace offered exposes the depth of their own ugliness, doesn't it? You ever had a situation like that where you're trying to be at peace with someone and they just will not be at peace with you? All it does is amplify how ugly that person truly is, right? Well, that's exactly what happens when God declares his love for a sinful world through the gospel. When God comes in his son and seeks to establish peace for those who have wronged him, He seeks to accomplish reconciliation through his son for those who have sinned high-handedly against him. When he comes seeking to make amends at such an extreme cost to himself, where he's going to take upon himself the full brunt and the full weight of bringing reconciliation between himself and the offender. When God the Father comes in His Son and yet still finds sinners rejecting that expression of love and that desire to be at peace and to reconcile with us, in no way does that reflect poorly upon God or upon what God has done in His Son. It reveals only the depth of evil that is still residing in the human heart. And it brings into sharper focus the justice of that person's condemnation. Where something is great, greater than the law has been manifested before our eyes, the very person of God the Son. And yet to reject Him, does that not scream out the need for the person who rejects that offer from God to be condemned? Yes, it does. That's how the gospel condemns. It manifests the rightness and the justice of condemning the person who will not receive it. I remember one time Jamie and I were at Orchestra Hall. She used to work at the Minnesota Orchestra, and we got free tickets to go hear music being played and and, uh, things like that, right? And so we're there one time, and there's this piece being played by a guy. with He's playing it with one arm on a piano, and uh, it's actually a piece that was written by a man who had lost one of his arms. And he was trying and struggling and, and, and really laboring to be able to play the piano as well as he could before he lost his other arm, except now he, he's trying to do it with one arm, right? Like the drummer from, uh, uh, this is a bad example, but uh, Def Leppard, right? The drummer from Def Leppard. Yeah, yeah. This is a much, much uh, uh, higher, a much better example to offer. Right? A guy lost his arm and he was a proficient piano player and he was trying He was trying and laboring and struggling to play the piano as well as he could. And he wrote this piece of music to capture that struggle that he was experiencing and trying to play the piano with one arm. And it was meant to sound choppy and it was meant to sound broken. Well, as this man in orchestra hall was playing this piece, at the end of it, in my ignorance, I spoke out loud because you guys know how often I struggle to keep my mouth shut. I spoke out loud, man, I really don't think that was that good only to have a lady in front of me turn around with her mouth wide open. Like, how dare you say that about this piece being played? You just need to get out of here. Right? My comment about that piece was not a reflection on the poor quality of the piece of music. It was a reflection on my own, my own inability to discern the glory of it. Right? That's the same way with the gospel. When the gospel comes and the sinner rejects that gospel, it's not... It's not a reflection on on, um, uh, some kind of limit or deficiency in the good news of God declared in Jesus Christ. All it is doing is reflecting the deficiency of the person who won't receive it. Verse 18, it tells us that 
or at least that's what's meant in verse 18 when it says that those who do not believe in the gospel are judged already. The gospel of God's love, in other words, doesn't come to a world that is morally neutral. It doesn't come to a world where, where every person, every human being is like in this plane of neutrality. And we got this one demon on the right side, or, and we got, we got God the Holy Spirit on the left side, or maybe swap those, because right is right and left is wrong. You got God on one side, and you got a demon on the other side, and they're both trying to vie for your, your allegiance, and you have to make the deciding factor as to whether or not you're going to go down the road of evil to condemnation or go down the road of obedience to God and Christ unto eternal life. That's, that's not the state of humanity. That's not, that's not the way that the gospel comes to us. We are not in a state of neutrality. We are actually already cornered into the corner of condemnation when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us. It comes to a world that has already been judged by God, a world that is already condemned. And so when, when a person refuses to, to receive or to accept the Father's command for us to escape that corner of condemnation by the way that He has blazed for us through His Son, when that person refuses to accept that way and they begin groping around for their own way to make things right with God or find some way to be restored to Him, all they're doing is groping around in the darkness and they are still condemned in that corner where God's judgment hangs upon them. The gospel of the Father's love and mercy in Christ comes to us as the answer to that condemnation. And as God the Father appeals for sinners to escape from that sentence of condemnation, He does so while there is still time for them to do it. But when the, gener when the sinner rejects that appeal, that rejection simply magnifies all the more the fact that that sinner deserves to remain in that corner of condemnation. And they deserve every bit of judgment that one day will fall upon them. And in this way, the very love of the Father sent in order to save sinners becomes the greatest witness to the justice of that sinner's condemnation who will not receive it. Now, in verses 19 through 20, Jesus describes the judgment that the gospel brings on unbelievers in three ways, or at least three ways that that judgment manifests in their response to the gospel, a threefold condemnation. That's the second main point. The first one we see in verse 19 is that their rejection of the gospel reveals their love for the darkness. The rejection of the gospel reveals their love of the darkness. Verse 19, this is the judgment, Jesus says, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. This word here for judgment at the beginning of verse 19 is the same word used in, in a courtroom setting for the judge pronouncing sentence. So, so this, is, this is the sentence this is the condemning statement from God the Father, our judge. Light has come into the world and you did not receive it. That's what the Father says. It's the verdict that heaven's light has drawn near to the unbeliever. But because of the unbeliever's love for the darkness, they reject that light and seek to move further away into darkness. Now, this highlights the essence of the sinner's problem. The person who will not believe in the gospel, ultimately their problem is not simply that he or she messes up every now and then. Their problem is not that they helplessly stumble into sin or that they are some innocent victim of sin, nor is their problem a lack of education or a lack of government legislation or a lack of knowledge about who God is and what He's done for man to be saved. That is not their problem. Because all of those things can come, can come together in the life of a person and find that person still not believing. No, the heart of the sinner's problem is the heart itself, not anything else. It's not a matter of environment or opportunity or a lack of education or weak governmental legislation. The real essence of the unbeliever's problem is the unbeliever's love for the darkness that causes him or her to turn away from the light. 
Man's real problem is the corruption that exists in our affections, in other words. Love is an affection. That is, it's a yearning of the soul. It is a longing. It's an inclination of the heart. And so just as Jonathan Edwards rightly pointed out in his book, Religious Affections, that true religion consists mainly in our affections, the same is true for the unbeliever. Their condemnation, their rejection of the gospel, the justice of that, lies firmly and squarely in that unbeliever's yearnings and longings and inclinations that are directed towards sin and darkness. That's what he was born by nature into, and that is all he has ever known. And until that love affair with sin is broken on the heart level, that person will never be freed to receive the love of the truth and be saved. So when the greatest demonstration of the affections of the Father are made known to us in his Son, and the sinner turns away from that because of their desire for sin and darkness... That's where the Father's love revealed in Christ becomes a seal of the unbeliever's condemnation. I had a section there going deep into the reality, and I'm going to do it now. I'm not going to go as far as I wanted, but this, this points to the reality of, as I've said before, the supernatural change that the Holy Spirit brings about in the new birth. You can't change the things that you love. You cannot change what you long to be satisfied with. The drunkard continues to get drunk because he loves getting drunk. The homosexual continues to engage in those destructive behaviors because that's what he or she craves. There is this longing. The, the unbeliever continues in unbelief because the unbeliever wants to be in unbelief. The covetous person buys and wastes money on all kinds of stuff because that person's God is their belly. It is their appetite, not the Lord of glory of the Scriptures. It's, it's this affection for sin that must be radically broken if we are going to be saved. So that ought to have some application to you, right? Right? We still struggle with the desires of the flesh. That's very clear in Galatians chapter 5. But the question is, when the desires of the flesh come up in your heart, when they rise and rear their ugly face and they're trying to take you captive to do the will of evil, is there at the same time rising up within you from the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit holy desires of godliness that come in and clash with those desires of the flesh? If you have those desires of the Spirit that are waging war against the desires of the flesh in your heart, then you need to take courage and know that that is the ministry of God in you, and you need to submit yourself to those desires of the Spirit. Our main problem is the problem of our affections, and the gospel comes as the answer to that problem. But until the gospel radically changes our affections, and causes us to hate the things that God hates and to love the things that God loves, we've not yet come into salvation. So that's one way that the gospel manifests the judgment upon the world. Secondly, the unbeliever's rejection of the gospel not only expresses their love for the darkness, but it also reveals their hatred for the light. Verse 20, Jesus says, For everyone who does evil hates the light. Excuse me. That's logical, right? You cannot love darkness without at the same time hating its opposite, which is light. That means that every unbeliever's opposition to Christ is not merely the result of moral indifference. It's not the result of academic maturity or having an enlightened mind or refined human reason. The rejection of Christ in the gospel is due to a rich love for that which is evil and a deep hatred for that which is good. Which manifests in action, doesn't it? 
What you love to do, guess what? You actually do. The state of your heart is reflected by the actions of your body. That's what Jesus says right here in, in verse 19. Or excuse me, verse 20. He says that hatred of Christ is revealed through their deeds. Everyone who does evil hates the light. The doing of the evil manifests their hatred for the light. And you need to keep something in mind. Hating the light does not necessarily have to manifest in raging against the light or shaking your fist up against God in light of that light, in response to that light. In John chapter 2, we find that there were some who thought they were truly believing in Jesus Christ, and yet Jesus would label them as haters of the light because they were not living fully in that light. Their lifestyle was not showing that they had truly come into fellowship with God in the light. They were still walking in darkness. So regardless of what they said, regardless of what they professed to believe about Jesus, they saw his wondrous deeds, they saw his miracles, and many believed in him. Yet we find in verse 24 of John chapter 2 that Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Right? Nicodemus was one of those people who thought that he was in fellowship with God in the light. And here Jesus is telling him, nope, not until the radical change of the new birth is accomplished in you can you be one who is in fellowship with God in the light. You know, a person's behavior will always demonstrate what is in his or her heart. You know, I used to hear more often than I do now that you, you can't judge me because you don't know what's in my heart. Well, that is partly true. I cannot read someone's heart, and I don't know exactly what's going on in the heart. Only the Lord can do that. But I can discern where your heart is by looking at the way you live your life. What a person does on the outside is a true gauge for what that person is on the inside. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 19. He says, evil thoughts and murders and adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander, all of these things come forth out of the heart. And because of that, those deeds of the body are a reflection of the true state of that person's heart. And this is true in all areas of life. If a person says, for example, I, I love my wife. And yet, if we looked at that person's life, we find that he's setting his eyes on shameful things. He's indulging his eyes with lustful glances or adulterous desires on the computer or on the phone. Or we come into his home and we find him speaking um, um, harshly with his wife and being ungracious towards her. Or maybe we find him neglecting his wife. Maybe living in bitterness against her. That man can say all he wants, I love my wife. But the reality is the actions in his life are betraying the truth. He does not love his wife. Same, thing with, same way with wives. Wives, you can say that you honor your husbands, but if you are constantly cutting him down or bickering and nagging or fighting with him whenever he seeks to be a leader in your home, your actions are also betraying your heart attitude towards him. The actions are speaking the truth that even if you say you honor him, in your heart you are not honoring or with a profession of love to Christ, or with his church, to, to love one another. We are called by Christ to love one another in this place, and we might confess with one another that we actually do love each other. But whenever we neglect the fellowship of the saints, we don't gather together with Christ's people, or in our gatherings we maintain a shallowness that doesn't enter into the full fellowship that God would have us have. When we don't call each other out for sin and we don't hold each other by the arm and we don't help one another live the difficult Christian life that's ahead of us, we can say that we love each other all we want, but in reality, our actions are manifesting the opposite. We can make a covenant with one another every single month. 
And the fact that we don't actually go about living up to that covenant or, or even expecting our brothers and sisters in this place to hold us accountable to that covenant proves that regardless of what we recite each month, the truth of it is not yet entered into our heart. In that same way, with God in Christ, we can make a profession all we want, but until that profession is actually gripping our heart and changing our lives, it is nothing but an empty profession. So, the gospel brings judgment upon the unbeliever by manifesting his or her love for the darkness and manifesting his or her hatred for the truth, the light. But then thirdly, you notice their rejection of God's light also serves to manifest their fear of being exposed. Verse 20, Jesus says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, don't worry if your translation does not have the word fear in this verse. It's actually a more accurate translation to the Greek than what the NASB has. But obviously, the idea and the concept of fear, even though it's not in Greek, that is the sense of what's being communicated here. What causes sinners to flee away from the light and to tuck themselves away in the darkness? Well, it is a fear of being exposed. And that fear, let me say this, that fear proves that in their consciences, sinners know that the deeds they are doing are wrong. If you truly believe that what you're doing is right, you have no desire to hide it from anyone. But when you are seeking to hide so that you yourself are not found out or you're not being exposed, what that's showing you is that there's something inside of you that recognizes that there's something wrong and you don't want other people to see it. You don't want to be found out. You know, one of the proofs that human beings truly are made in God's image is the fact that we know when we are, when we are in the wrong and when we sin. Romans 2.15 teaches us that we have an innate knowledge of God and of what He expects from us as human beings made in His image. We have His law written in upon our heart. God has ensured that we as His image bearers know what is right and wrong. Now, when we live according to that law, when we, when we maintain it and live in congruency with it, there's a witness in our conscience that excuses us, that tells us we are living in the right. But what happens when in our consciences we know that we are not living up to what we know to be right? Our own conscience will then condemn us, won't it? Unbelievers may not consciously attribute their sense of guilt and shame to this innate knowledge of God, but in reality, that is where it comes from. And let me give you some examples of how we see this working itself out even in our own day. Because we innately know in our consciences that our sin is wrong, in our pride, we seek to stay in the darkness and try as best as we can to convince ourselves that if we stay in that darkness long enough, we will not eventually be found out. This is why the culture of darkness and death all around us is cramming, cramming down our throat issues of LGBTQI plus 2ZX, whatever, or you know, transgenderism. Why are we being force-fed things like this? Why, why, are we being, why are we being inundated with, government, with ideas of government-sanctioned robbery being something good? Socialism. Why, why, where is this coming from? Why is there such an effort and a move not only to get everyone to comply with these kinds of ideas, but to get them to celebrate it? See, it's not enough just to carve out space for someone else to come alongside of us who has a different opinion than us. No, 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 that's not enough. We have to force you to celebrate what we think to be true. Well, I'm sorry. I won't celebrate that. Where does that drive come from? Well, sin loves company. And these unbelievers who are living sinful lives know that what they are doing is wrong and shameful and immoral and twisted and perverted and disgraceful. They know that they are doing things that go against the very fabric of their makeup. 
And so their attempt to force everyone else to accept it is itself proof that they feel guilt over those kinds of behaviors, and they're trying to wipe that guilt out, right? You know, we innately know that it's wrong to murder someone, don't we? And don't we innately recognize, don't we automatically recognize that the guilt over murdering someone is exponentially increased when that victim is innocent and absolutely helpless? And yet, we're being forced by our culture to celebrate the murder of children, ripping them out from the very safest place or at least the space that's supposed to be the safest place for them, their womb, mother's womb. We innately know that that's wrong. But in order to try to deal with that guilt, what do we have to do? We have to keep declaring the lie and hope that everyone else around us joins in so that we no longer feel guilty over what we are approving. Same thing with uh, our knowledge of biology and genetics. It makes very clear that there's no such thing as transgendering. It's a lie. It's a farce. It's, it's, it's a facade. It's, it's some fake thing that we're trying to hold up and declare to be something true. But our, our knowledge of biology and genetics makes clear that we cannot physically be something other than what we are genetically. It's impossible. Nature itself teaches us that there's no life in the lifestyle of homosexuality by the fact that no homosexual behavior ever produces life. In fact, engaging in, in homosexual behavior actually cuts down the life expectancy of the homosexual. Doesn't that in and of itself show us that that is an unnatural behavior that does not belong to humanity, ought not to be permitted? Well, some of you might feel like what I'm saying is pretty radical. That might just show how far away we as a culture have drifted from a true biblical and sane perspective of reality. I'm not speaking in hatred, but I am speaking the truth. See, humanity innately knows and recognizes that these kinds of things are wrong, but the tactic that is as old as the garden is to force communal approbation of that behavior. Force everyone in the society to accept it, to applaud it, to herald it, thinking that if we can somehow get everyone to call good evil and evil good, that will somehow make it good or evil. See, forced compliance and celebrations of these things are simply an attempt to bury the sense of shame and guilt that we all have whenever we engage in ungodly, unholy behavior. It's nothing different than what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden after they felt their own shame over their sin, right? What did they do after they sinned? They recognized that they were naked and they felt shame over that and they sought to sew fig leaves together to hide their nakedness. When the Lord came and addressed them about their sin, did those fig leaves hide the truth from his piercing eyes? Absolutely not. Well, just as those fig leaves did not avail, no amount of any other kinds of fig leaves will avail in the day of God's judgment. None of our fig leaves will cover up our shame or the evil of our deeds when we stand before God. In fact, Hebrews 4 says that we will all be naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When God thunders with his holy summons, where are you? Or when Christ comes and confronts the world with his glory at his second coming, that's when the time for the shenanigans will be over and all the games will stop. The darkness will be dispelled and every evil deed will be laid bare for what it is. And it will be laid bare for all to see. In the end, every, every unbeliever who has struggled against the knowledge of the truth will see that it has all been in vain. Nothing more than an attempt to hold the wind in their hands. You know, that just magnifies the greatness of God's plea for all the world to turn to him and be saved, doesn't it? 
that God stands before us in his son pleading for sinners to recognize that they are boxed into a corner of condemnation and there is only one way to get out of it and that is through Jesus Christ. God the Father stands before all the world and pleads with them, come to my son, come to my son, be saved, escape from the wrath of God that's coming, flee to Jesus for refuge. And the world continues on in indifference. Slothfulness. Negligence. Boy, how often do we find those very same things in us? Right, believer? You need to understand how severe of a matter that is. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that that is not a severe reality that you need to deal with in Christ. When you're feeling that indifference towards Christ, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin to him, and you need to deal with it. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says in verse 20, we are ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. As though God himself were making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So you hear in that, that declaration, the message of the gospel, that God has provided everything necessary to fully and completely reconcile himself to the world. And the call of the gospel goes out to the world saying, be reconciled. Just be reconciled. Don't fight it. Receive it. I love uh, Isaiah 27. I believe it's verse 5. Yep. Yahweh says to his enemies as he's coming out to do battle with them, as they are amassing themselves before Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth, they are amassing themselves for war. And as Yahweh steps forth to do battle with them, he looks to them and he says, oh, just rely on my protection. Come and make peace with me. Come and make peace with me. That's what God is declaring even among those who amass themselves against him. He's saying, just come. Quit being stupid. Quit being a little gnat beating your head against a world of granite. It's all going to come to nothing. Just, just, just give up. Fall down. Receive my son. Be at peace with me. God does not want to condemn sinners. But he will. And because of the fear that they have of facing themselves in light of what they truly are in the light of the gospel... Unbelievers will continue refusing God's appeals to them for peace. And in the end, they will receive in full measure exactly what they've wanted. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. He wrote concerning these verses. He says, Our Lord tells us that light has come into the world, that God has revealed enough of the way of salvation to make men inexcusable if they are not saved. But the real account of the matter is that men have no will or inclination to use the light. They love their own dark and corrupt ways more than the ways which God proposes to them. They therefore reap the fruit of their own ways and will at last have what they have loved. They loved darkness and they will be cast into outer darkness. They did not like the light, so they will be shut out from the light eternally. In short, lost souls will be what they willed to be and will have what they loved. That is the condemnation of the gospel upon everyone who refuses to receive it. You will have what you have wanted in all of its fullness one day. And it will be God's judgment. Third and final point, and this one will go much quicker. In verse 21, Jesus contrasts the unbeliever's condemnation with the believer's communion with God. So verse 21 contrasts the unbeliever's condemnation with the believer's communion with God. Jesus here says, he who practices, contrasting, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds might be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, this is a hard translation. It's a hard verse to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. 
But the sense of it is this. Those who come freely and willingly to the light are those who practice the truth. That is, they've come to be convinced of the truth of the gospel and they come to the light and they conscientiously and wholeheartedly walk before God in that light. There's no, in other words, there's no internal hindrance to keep them from coming to the light. There's no internal opposition or shame or fear that keeps them from coming to Jesus. They have already had all of that broken off of them by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They've been brought to the new birth. They've been made new. Their love affair with darkness has been shattered. And now they find it only natural to come unto God and have fellowship with Him in the light of the gospel. So all the things that would make them doubt the love of God and keep them from coming to God, believing His intentions to be wrong, He just wants to harm us, He just wants to hurt us, He's out to get me, all of that stuff has been broken by the sweet ministry of the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God into our hearts. That there's, there's this renewal work that happens in the life of the believer that does not allow them to continue loving darkness and hating light and being afraid to come to God like Adam and Eve. There's this renewal work that brings a freedom and a liberty in the Holy Spirit for the, for the person to come unto the Lord and be saved. They've been born again from above, and now as they keep in step with the Holy Spirit, all that they do is done in fellowship with God, and they are not, un they are not ashamed for that to be seen. That's what that last phrase means, fellowship with God, that these works have been accomplished in fellowship with God, where it says they come to the light without fear because they know that their deeds have been wrought in God. They've been accomplished in God. Literally, the sense there is, or excuse me, um, one of the main lexicons that I read says, makes this comment in regard to that phrasing. Let me, let me restate that. One of the lexicons that I read, BDAG, has this translation of John 3.21 at that point. It says they come to the light he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done in communion with God. That that's the sense here. Their deeds have been done in close association or under the influence of God. That is the difference between those who will ultimately be condemned by the gospel and those who ultimately will be saved in the gospel. That the gospel provides a pathway for fellowship with God that the true believer enjoys and relishes and receives. Now, in closing application, we've had a full morning. I'm going to try to be quick on this, but I hopefully, hopefully it'll be helpful. This verse, this final verse, 21, it teaches us that the Christian life is more than mere duty and chore. It's not merely doing this activity or doing that activity. The Pharisees were experts at that, right? Nicodemus was a prime example of one who knew how to cross the T's and dot the I's and follow through with sacrificial obedience and adherence to the law. The Christian life is not merely that. We might strive to do this and do that and have this rule and have that rule and, and seek to just gut it out and do things and pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just make things happen by the power of our own will. But even you and I know that there's no power in that. There's no way for us to live for the kingdom of God as one who is energized by these things. If our perspective on what it means to live the real, true Christian life is merely limited to a bunch of do's and don'ts. The real Christian life is a life that is lived in communion with God. It is a life that has conscious awareness of walking with God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The blessing that the psalmist talked about, right? Where they, they begged God, restore the light of your countenance upon us. Let your face shine upon us. What do you think they were talking about when they made phrases like that? 
Do you think they were just trying to convince themselves that God is real and I need some, some kind of emotional manipulation to make me believe it? No, that's not what they were saying. They were begging God for real, experiential, tangible, real, uh, real worship and experience of his presence with them. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 21. The way that the believer can be unashamed by our deeds and by our works and not afraid to come to the light is because everything that we do in our lives, everything that we do in our lives is done out of a sense of fellowship and communion with God. There are rules, there are commands, there are moments in our lives when we must offer up to God a gut-wrenching obedience to his will because that's all that we have to give. And that is right in those moments to do that. But that cannot sustain the Christian life. It must be lived out of a communion with God. Therefore, if you've been brought by the grace of God out of your darkness, then your chore every day, your greatest need is to press into a fuller, richer, and deeper experience of spiritual communion with God. How are you going to do that? By faithfully and diligently, in the context of faith, devoting yourselves to using the means of grace that he has provided for you. Bible study, prayer, proper practice of the ordinances, fellowship with the saints, purposefully walking in holiness. None of these things are ends in and of themselves. They are means to lead us towards a greater end, which is fellowship with God. And if you are not reaching a greater experience and sense of fellowship with God at the end of all of your praying and all of your Bible study and all of your fellowship with people in the church, your practice of the ordinances and gathering together with the saints, if the end of all of those things is not a deeper sense and realization of communion with God, then you're doing something wrong. I'll end, I'll end on this. George Mueller. George Mueller has a fascinating testimony of his life. If you've not read much about George Mueller, I would encourage you to, to go do a Google search on him, pick up a couple books, and just read about his faithful dependency on God and prayer throughout his life. In his journal, he wrote about his practice of doing devotions every day. Amid all of his ministry demands and the pressures of running an orphanage and most often left wondering where their next meal was going to come from, Mueller wrote in his diary that despite all of those pressures, he says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Beloved, Jesus tells us in John 3, 21, that is what ought to be our primary focus because that's where the Christian life is lived. Getting our souls happy in the Lord every single day is what prepares us to live that day for the glory of God. That is the source of living the Christian life and those who practice the truth, those who live with no need to hide in their shame, but come to the light, do so as an expression of their loving communion and fellowship with God. May we all know that fellowship in greater ways as we seek to draw near to Christ according to his will. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful that none of us have to hide our weaknesses from you. And it is good news that no matter how hard we try, we cannot hide ourselves from you in the darkness. Because even the darkness is as light to you. Night and day are the same. No matter where we dwell, no matter where we go, you see us and you know us. Your eyes see and your eyelids test the sons of men. Father, I pray that we would not be those who turn away, who shrink back and turn away from the light of the gospel. But may we be those who have faith unto the preservation of the soul. 
We pray that your ministry in our hearts by your spirit would take this word and enliven and quicken it and help us live lives of holy fellowship with you, walking together with you in the light. God, I ask this and I pray, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. May you hear the benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. For they report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. As you wait with God in the fellowship of the light of the gospel, may he give you grace to endure until that day of his return. May you go in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.